Well, this morning we're going to start a, what I think is going to be an incredible journey through the book of Exodus. Uh, I have no idea how long this is going to take. I did not try to map it out and try to say we're going to get through in, in this length of time. Um, so we're just going to get started. And I'm going to, in, in many ways, probably today spend time on what many of you would, would likely know about a general overview of the study or the book of Exodus. Uh, most of you here, I realize not everybody, but most of you here would know, yeah, the general story of Exodus is a man named Moses leads Israel out of the slavery of Egypt across the Red Sea through the wilderness and eventually, uh, in later books, they'll get to, their, to the promised land. What I think you might be surprised, even if you know the story of Exodus, you might be surprised to realize that the theme of Exodus runs all throughout Scripture. In fact, the book of Exodus is not the first Exodus from Egypt to Canaan. A man named Abraham went down to Egypt during a famine, met the Pharaoh, left Egypt with all the riches of Egypt, and he returned to the land of Canaan. Huh. And, and what I hope today is to lay down this theme that we are going to see throughout Exodus, but, but throughout the scriptures, and it gives us this repetitive theme, because as you read the Bible, don't read these stories disconnected from one and I'm afraid to use the word stories because I don't want us to think they're not true I'll probably many times use the word narrative uh, it's telling of what took place but in the narratives of, of Exodus they're not they're not dis, disjointed from other part ports of parts of scripture we we see exile which means separation we see rescue by God we see provision by God and often ending in a place that is prepared by God. I want to show you some of the exoduses throughout the Bible. Just, I want to take you on a, a real quick journey, but I think it's going to be so cool. Did you know that the Bible begins with an exodus? Think of this. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and after they sin, their sin has now separated them from God. But what does God do? Leave them alone? No, he comes and he rescues to say, I will bring a seed of woman to rescue you. He provides for them. They have to leave the garden, but God has a new place for them. So we see Exodus right away. In fact, the, the man that we know as the leader of Exodus, Moses, it's so cool. Moses Actually, his life is made up of four different exoduses. When Moses is born, what happens? He's exiled from his family. He's placed in a, in, in a little uh, ark and, and put onto the water, and, and he's exiled from his family, but he's rescued by God through the person of Pharaoh's daughter, and he's given a new home. And at the age of 40, Moses has to run from Egypt because he's now fearful for his life and he lives as an exile, but God provides for him a wife and even children and a father-in-law that would play into a story and a new home. And 40 years later, at the age of 80, he returns to Egypt to lead the children of Israel through the exodus we know of. He's hoping to get to the promised land, but he doesn't get there. But 40 years later, at the age of 120, Moses goes through another exodus as he leaves where he is, rescued by God in death to be given a new place to live, a new home until 
the redemption is complete by Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool that there's these, these themes of Exodus? And as you keep reading the, the Old Testament, the prophets, they speak of a future Exodus. Listen, repent. If not, a foreign nation is going to come in here and they are going to take you away and you will be exiled. But God is not going to leave you. He will rescue you and return you to home. The New Testament opens with the birth of Jesus, which is an exodus. He leaves the side of his father to be an exile in the womb of a woman on the earth he created, ending in his death, but he is rescued in death only to be given a place at the right hand of the father. And don't we all await a final exodus? I mean, Paul says uh, to be absent from the body, that exile, to be to, now I'm, I'm gone, is to be present with the Lord. But there's going to be a day when Jesus returns and he comes to set his final kingdom in place where we will no longer need an exodus for we will spend together forever with the Lord. Uh, exodus is meant to point us to Jesus. And it's... So excited to be able to go through this. Paul is going to use Exodus as a very important point as he teaches a group of people about themselves. I, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I'm, I'm going to put up some, I'm going to put up some verses that Paul uses in First Corinthians. And, and here's what I want you to understand: Remember, we've said these last two weeks. The Bible wasn't written to you; the Bible was written for you. Paul's writing to a group of Gentiles in Corinth. And he's going to bring the story of Israel, and he's going to say their story. Now that you as a Gentile have found faith in Christ and have become a part of the seed, the line of Abraham, you now look at their story. And here's what I want you to know. That's your story. So the exodus of the Jews, Paul looks at later in the New Testament, turns to Gentiles, which is what we are, and says their story is your story. Let, let me read with you. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the cloud being the pillar of cloud uh, that, of God's presence, and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. But notice what he says. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Here's what Paul's saying. Hey, hey, you know the story of the exodus of the Jews, and here's what I want you to know. Yes, they all experienced the same thing, and God rescued all of them, but God rescued them for a purpose, and they did not recognize the purpose of their rescue, so they didn't actually make it to the promised land. They were overthrown in the wilderness. And I know you're sitting there like, so Pastor, what in the world does that have to do with us? Think, think with me. How many people sit under the preaching, 
under the teaching of the word of God. They sit under the praises being lifted. And we could say all, all, all of us are receiving the same thing. And yet some do not understand the purpose of God's salvation. Therefore, we don't please him. Meaning, salvation is not about not going to hell someday and just going along for the ride with a whole bunch of other people. Many of the people who were saved from Egypt never saw the promised land. And I really believe it's, it's very important for us as Christians to understand attending church is not enough. Watching other people serve is not enough. Celebrating God's work is not enough. Hey, God did not save us so we could sit watching good things happen. He saved us to partner with him in making good things happen. We've been saved, we've been rescued, but not for our own, for his glory. Paul's going to continue through 1 Corinthians talking about Exodus, and he says this. He says, they were also an example of how we're supposed to live and how we're not supposed to live. He says in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they do. Did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And this is what Paul says, looking back at the Exodus, we must not indulge in sexual, sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What Paul wants, the Corinthians, and what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand is as we look at this Exodus story, we're not looking at the story of something that has happened to someone else, but we are viewing our history when you see video and images of 9-11 it should immediately recognize and move your heart and mind to our national history it's a part of our national history hey as we go through exodus don't disjoint this don't allow it to be disjointed from you don't allow it to be disjointed from else there's going to be these echoes of exodus that should ha happen all throughout scripture and all throughout our lives because we're viewing our spiritual history. God rescued Israel out of their bondage, but he didn't release them. He told them where they were going to live and how they were going to live. He saved them from Egypt for the promised land, and on the way, they got the Ten Commandments and a whole lot more. And so Exodus teaches us that not only have we been saved from Satan and sin, from Pharaoh and Egypt. But we have been saved to God and to a life of holiness. We have been told not just that you're saved from Egypt, but you are saved to the promised land to, come to obey these 10 and many other commands. And this truth should cut right to the heart of the understanding of our salvation. 
please listen carefully and don't don't try not to take my words in a different way than what they're meant but if if all we were needing was to be saved from hell a sinner's prayer is sufficient we could walk away having prayed the prayer and be done but we haven't just been saved from hell We've been saved into, as your class was talking about this morning, Gordon, we have been saved into the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, we are not just say, we are not just told you can do whatever you want to. You're not going to hell. Do whatever you want. One day you'll get there. No, you've been saved from hell and placed into the kingdom of God, which means you have a ruler and a set of rules. Not harsh rules. You have a set of rules that the king would desire us to live by. And I think what's tragic, but very true, is that many Christians, their life could be summed up by the testimony that Paul shared in, in 1 Corinthians. They were all there. They were all there. They were all there. They were all there for these events. But God was not pleased. And they perished in the wilderness. So let's keep the exodus in line with our story as we enter. Now, we're not going to get far today because I knew we had the, um, uh, the deacon ordination. And, and we're not going to get real, real deep or interesting. But I, I want to just jump in both feet and uh, see where, what the Lord has for us. So let's start with Exodus chapter 1, verse number 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. I know, genealogy is so much fun, isn't it? <laughs> these verses are not exciting at all, but these verses are very important for where we're about to go. Because what they are telling the reader is that this is a continuation of the Genesis narrative. This won't stand out to you and I because we don't memorize the Old Testament. But here's what you would need to know. Someone, a Jew, who would memorize the Old Testament, when they come to Exodus chapter 1, their mind will immediately say, I've read this before. They would have read it in Genesis 46. In Genesis 46, there's a greater detail, but in Genesis 46, it opens and closes with the same exact things we just read in Exodus 1 through 5. These are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, and then goes on and he lists all of Reuben's sons and so forth and so forth. Get all the way down to verse 27. He sums it up by saying the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So, like, here's, here's what we have to understand. Immediately, the writer of Exodus is going to, wham, he's going to merge Exodus with Genesis and say, you cannot separate them. And you can't separate them because it's very important for us to understand why was Israel Egypt in the first place? Why do they need to be saved out of this place? Why were they in Egypt? Now, if you know your Bibles, especially that first book of Bible. My guess is many of you are thinking, I know why Israel was in Egypt, and your, your wheels are spinning, and you're thinking, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. That slavery, when that's, those slave traders took him to Egypt. He ended up in Potiphar's house where he was lied about. He ended up in 
prison where he interpreted a dream and he ended up in the palace where he helped save uh, the world from a famine and then Joseph's brothers came to Egypt because they were hungry and there was food there and they met and there was this family reunion and Joseph said, come on, everybody live here. That's how Israel got to Egypt. That's not why Israel was in Egypt. And we need to know why they were there because this is huge. This plays such an important role in understanding the purpose of the Exodus. So to understand why Israel was in Egypt, we actually have to go back further than Joseph. We have to go all the way back to this man named Abraham. Abraham made a covenant with God. Actually, God made a covenant with Abraham. And if you see in Genesis chapter 15, God said to Abraham, go outside and look at the stars of the sky. Someday your offspring will be like that. And Abraham asks this question. This is important. How will I know? He believed, but he was asking, how will I know? And God puts him in a deep sleep, and, and he splits some animals in half, and he makes a blood covenant with Abraham. But this is what he says to Abraham, which tells us why Israel is in Egypt. God says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. And that's when Abraham's like, but, but Lord, how do I know that you're going to give this land to me? And this is God's answer. Know for certain that your offspring will be. Now let your mind wrap around Exodus. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for, for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Is your mind following? Are, are you following with me how Genesis and Exodus are, are, are merged? If, if you're missing it, let, let me try to help you. Your offspring will be sojourners. That means they weren't permanent citizens. They were, they were there temporarily in a land that is not theirs. That's Israel and Egypt. And they will be servants. They were slaves. They will be afflicted. They were punished for 400 years. But God would bring judgment. That's the plagues that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out of Egypt with great possessions. That's what Israel's going to do. They're going to have all the possessions of Egypt. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. And they, those offspring, I promise you, will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so here's another beautiful lesson Exodus teaches us. That God has a much larger plan than we can see. So may I encourage you to be faithful to the role he has given you. Here's the thing. God spoke this to Abraham, but Abraham didn't write it down in the Bible. So when the Jews were off in Egypt serving, the only promises they had were oral tradition that would have been passed from Abraham to someone else, to someone else, to someone else, to someone else, to someone else. And look, look, when Joseph got to Egypt, he was put in prison. How in the world does this fit into the plan that one day 
we'll have, we'll, our offspring will come back and inhabit this land. But God knew what he was doing. And if Joseph had bucked in his role, boy, we, we would be reading some very different scripture, right? Hey, God has a plan for your life. But we got to step back. He has a plan, not just for your life, but for your family. Hey, I'm step back. He has a plan, not just for your family, but he has a plan for your community. And not just your community, but for your country. Not just for your country, but for the world. And not just for this time, but for all time. And hey, here's the thing. I know some of you are carrying burdens right now. And your thought is, what in the world, Lord, are you doing? And here's the thing. Sometimes it takes a really long time to see what God is doing. We must be faithful in the role that he's given. Some of you today, your role is to be the kindest, most gentlest grandmother to your children that you could be so that those kids are continuously pointed to the person of Jesus. Some of you have a role as professionals and you go to work and you need to make sure that your role is that I am going to be ethical, I'm going to be truthful, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to display the goodness of Jesus in my life to the people who may not know him. Some of you, though, your role is suffering. Some of you are the Josephs. Some of you are the ones that are forgotten after Joseph. And just serving as slaves. Struggling. And carrying affliction. We're going to get to it in just a moment. But don't abandon your role. And don't abandon your God in the midst of that. He's bringing a plan together that's greater than we could ever understand. And I want to show you just one more thing about this, why we can trust God. If you look at the very last line of the verses behind me, here's what God says. For the iniquity, the sin, the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? It means this. God tells Abraham, I'm going to give this land to your people one day, but I'm not going to give it to your people until the inhabitants of this land have no chance of repentance. So you're going to go away for 400 years and you will come back. And when you will come back, you will bring judgment on people who never turned to me. But I am not going to be rash or quick or harsh in my judgment. I'm going to give them 400 years to repent and turn from me. Now, did God know they wouldn't? Yes. But did God give them the opportunity? Man, that's amazing. You know what that tells me? Is that God's not this bloodthirsty ogre that he's often made out to be that when his people come into the promised land and they start wiping out the inhabitants, we think, how could God do that? God was judging wickedness after giving them time after time after time, 400 years to repent, and they never did. But here's the thing. Those who did repent, they weren't judged. You look at Rahab. Rahab was an inhabitant of this land, and she was spared because she believed in the Lord. Sometimes we have people that ask this question, why would God let wickedness in this world? 
That's a valid question, right? Well, let's just think. God brought his people in to clean the land of wickedness, but when he did that, he's called an ogre for the way that it was done. So God addresses wickedness, he's criticized, but if God ignores wickedness, he's criticized. God uses his people to clean the land. And then here's what we need to know. God will one day use a man named Nebuchadnezzar, a very wicked man, to come in and clean the land again because his people failed to follow him. God is a God that isn't out for blood. He's a God who offers mercy. He offers, he offers forgiveness for those who are repentant, who, who, who come to repentance God is not out for blood. God is out for justice and righteousness. So, let me give you two more verses from Exodus 1, and then we'll be close today. In Exodus 1, sorry, here we go. I'm going the wrong way. These buttons confuse me. Forgive me. Uh, Come on, Brian. There we go. Here we go. Two more verses from Exodus 1. It says, Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And I know you're sitting back there going, hey, pastor, is, this gonna, is it, is it going to be this boring as we go through Exodus the whole time? I'm telling you, like, it is not. It, there, this is a little bit of a foundation. But, but here's the thing. Just like I told you that we wouldn't have recognized the opening of Exodus is merged into Genesis when a, a, a Jewish reader would come to Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 and read the words fruitful and increased greatly, multiplied and the land filled with them, they would immediately say, ha, I've heard that before. Because what did God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the land. And what did God tell Noah? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Ah, so here's what we have to understand. God told this. God's already said this, but he, he said it to Adam. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But Adam sinned and he brought a curse on mankind, a curse that would eventually result in the flood where God has to get rid of all of humanity by cleansing them and saving Noah, starting over saying, be fruitful, multiply. He says it a second time. And what happens? They don't fill the earth. They stay together, build a tower to Babel, and they bring a curse again. And now God is... Ah, twice I've told my people to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And the idea here is we don't get it. Do you know what God does? I love this. He goes to a man named Abraham, and you know what he doesn't tell Abraham? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You know what he does tell Abraham? I will make of you a great nation. He take God now takes responsibility for what he wants to happen. He doesn't say you do this because it's failed time after time. Now he says, hey, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And when God says he's going to do something, he does it. Right? So Abraham's son is Isaac. And Isaac says in Genesis 26, the Lord made room for us. We shall be fruitful. The grandson of Abraham, whose name is Jacob, he receives a blessing from God in Genesis 35 and says, I am, God says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, multiply. 
Genesis 41, the great-grandson of Abraham, his name is Joseph. He names his son Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Whoa, time out. Joseph just said, God made me fruitful in my affliction. Remember, I just got done telling you, some of you, your, your part in the story is sorrow and suffering. But God can still make you fruitful in that place because that's the way God works. Because when we look at the cross, do we see a greater sorrow? Do we see greater affliction? The sins of the world were poured on our Jesus, but it was in his affliction we now have the chance to be children of God. Man, I know I got to land the plane. I know I have to do that. But here's what I'm saying. The echoes of Exodus, we don't just look back to Genesis and go, oh yeah, be fruitful, multiply. Ha, ha. The echo of Exodus runs all the way to the New Testament when Jesus gathers his disciples in John 15 and he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much The branch, he says, cannot bear fruit by itself. So the last thing we'll get to today. Exodus teaches us fruitfulness is not found in good works. It's found in partnership with God's work. He's the vine. We're the branches. I don't just go out and try to do good things on my own. I go out and I partner with God. Huh. Don't you one day, and I know I'm talking to some of you who are older than me, I realize that, and I'm also talking to some who are younger than me, but don't you one day want to sit back and say, ah, what, I'm so thankful for what God has done in my family. And I, I, I want to, just going to be honest with you, I, I thought that for so many years, like I want God to do something great in my family, and if you ask my children, they will admit to you that their father tried to make the Hassies fruitful. I want us bearing spiritual fruit and we will bear spiritual fruit by you doing exactly what I say, when I say to do it, how I say to do it, and don't ask any questions. Man, did I spend a lot of my life doing that. And then we moved to Virginia and the Lord placed me in this church with kind-hearted, gospel-centered people that began awaking my heart and my spirit to realize I can't do this with my kids. Only he can. I've had this tight grip trying to control everything that they do, every word that they say, every place that they go, every friend that they have, because if I could just control this, I will make sure they get the way I want them to be. And what the Lord was saying is, who's the father here? Haven't I proven myself good enough for you to let go and say, they're not mine. They're yours. 
in our family has had to have many talks, many apologies from dad to children to say, you know what, here's what dad used to say, used to act like, and used to, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And step back, man, do I want want fruit in our family? Oh, so much I do. But it was a few years ago where I just had to realize it's not going to be through my efforts. It's not going to be through my good works. It's not going to be through me trying. And our family just began, like, immersing ourselves in the good news of Jesus. This dad had to immerse himself in the fact that I have been an earthly caretaker, but my children are far outloved by their heavenly father than they ever will be by their earthly father. That I could plan and scheme and do everything that I think I could do, and they could still run far from me if they want to. I'm never going to win their hearts. Jesus has to win their hearts. I was finishing up this sermon on Thursday in my office and I I texted my son Troy and I said, hey, I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't want to make a public spectacle and this is not about you and this is not about me. But Troy, can I share your letter with our church? And he said, sure. I know most of you know this, but maybe not all, but my son got married on December 3rd. I had spent some time the week before writing, writing out a letter to, to him as a dad, just, just wanting to share my heart with him, something that I hope that he, he holds on to and occasionally takes out and looks at it. I want him to know how proud I am of him, how much I love him, how, what a joy it has been to be his father. And I gave that to him the day before he got married. And on the morning of his wedding, I got this letter. And all I can say is, it's his fruit. Dad, truthfully, I don't know where to begin. I just finished reading your letter and I'm overcome with emotions again. Memories, memories, memories. That's all I can think about. Everything you mentioned is what's on my mind and I can't help but think, where did the time go? It feels like yesterday we did all that stuff. It doesn't feel like we've been here almost six years now. I know I talked a little bit about it tonight. It was when we had a conversation. But what makes my heart hurt the most about this marriage is the leaving of the family to begin my own. I hate the leaving part. I know I'm not literally leaving y'all because we'll still be five minutes away. But the fact that I'm beginning my own family without y'all, you'll always be my family. And I'll always love you. Dad, you taught me life. You taught me how to be a man. You taught me how to be a Christian and to follow God. You taught me how to be a father. You taught me how to be a coach and a leader. You taught me how to be a servant and that it's okay to go unnoticed. You taught me to be perfect and accept nothing except excellence and perfection. I wanted you to be happy with me. I wanted to make you so proud of me. I wanted to show you that I was a man and that I could handle life. And now all I want to do is be like you. 
I'm excited to start my new life with Laney. I'm happy. I'm more than happy. I'm joyful. I'm so thankful that you're my dad. There's days when I was mad and angry with you and, I, and, thought, and, and how I thought I was treated, but looking back now, it's made me who I am today and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Please know you did not fail. I know you are afraid of that and I remember you talking about it before, but you have nothing to fear. You're the dad of my life. I couldn't ask for anyone better. You're the ultimate dad still remember sitting there for Christmas almost every year. Our hands and everything were full. We had so much stuff. Mom had so much. We had like one gift from everybody, and that was it. But to you, it was enough because you got to see how happy we were getting what you gave us. To me and through my eyes, it wasn't enough. I was heartbroken for you because I wasn't able to afford more for you. I know it's part of being a dad and parenting, but it didn't go unnoticed. But now, I'd rather sit and watch people open and get gifts that I gave them and see the joy on their faces. And then I realized what it's like for you. Thanks for being my example and my dad. Thank you for my life and all you've done for me. Thank you for always taking care of us and providing for us. I'm so proud and happy to be your son, to get to carry on the Hassey name. It's truly an honor to be your son. I love you with all my heart and life, Dad. You're the best dad ever. I, and I did not share that to make you think anything of this guy. Because that letter would have been very different had it not been for the work of our Jesus. We... I'll cherish that forever. I love you and I'm proud of you. But what I know he began to recognize was something's different about my dad. And what was different about his dad was what Jesus was doing in his dad's heart. Man, I... I so desire to un for us to understand. We are Adam and Noah, and we will fail to be fruitful on our own. Try as hard as you want to be good, and we're going to struggle to fail. Abiding in the vine. Staying close to Jesus. And allowing his work to come into our life will change our work. Don't go out and try to do good things. Go out and serve the king. Let the king do the good things in your life. And people will begin to notice. I give God all the honor and glory for this. And I thank him for the son, two sons, and partially for the one daughter. Just kidding. God's been good to our family. If there's any fruit, it's only because of what the work of the vine has done. And he wants to do it in your life too. Would you pray with me?